north doors over there. All right, so there's been a lot of missions activity now, as Niels pointed out recently. Um, we've had a couple of visits from missions partners. We have the Czech trip planning that started. Uh, we had our Sunday of service uh, last month for the second time. Uh, we have uh, all, all kinds of things that are going on. And so we wanted to take some time to revisit uh, sort of the biblical basis for missions and some practical considerations as well, to take a trip through Genesis to Revelation, because that's the part of the Bible that concerns missions, all of it. And so we're going to race through the entire Bible. Are you ready for it? Um, so uh, I just want to start by going back a few years uh, to uh, a converted grocery store in Treiskirchen, in Austria, a place called the Oasis. There it is there. Uh, that was about right before I left, January 2003, and then we had the opportunity to visit it in April when we took a trip to Europe with our kids, and that's what it looks like today. It's still going. 35 years it's been going. We had lots of different ministries there. We taught English. We taught German. We had kids' ministry. I ran a youth ministry. We had clothing distribution. But once a week, probably our favorite time, we had a worship service. So the refugees that lived in the camp nearby, there were about 2,000 there, mostly from Muslim countries, uh, but some were Christians, and we would have a service, a worship service, where we would invite in the Armenians from Armenia and the Armenians who were living in Iran. We'd invite in some folks from African, Africa, French-speaking countries, some new German, uh, and so we would have someone speaking in English up front, typically, and then we'd have translation happening all throughout this tiny room, which is behind those front doors there. So we'd have French going on over here, and we'd have Farsi over here, and we'd have Russian over here, and we might have some German over here, and we might have some Arabic. And so you'd have all this sort of sail line in English and this cacophony of translation that was happening at the same time. And it was beautiful, and it was chaos at times. Sometimes I got pressed into duty once translating into German, and my German was not really good enough for that task, but I muddled my way through. So it was a beautiful mess. But it was mostly beautiful, a little bit of a mess, but mostly beautiful because it was a foreshadowing of what heaven's going to be like. Because in heaven, we are going to have people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who are going to be represented. But it won't be that kind of chaos because we'll all understand, right? We won't have different languages in heaven. We'll all be able to understand each other. And that is uh, something that is coming. It's all of history is marching towards that outcome. And we see that represented in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 7, which says, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So there you have it. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And if it wasn't enough there, we have the same sort of scene repeated two chapters later. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is going to happen. It, it's going to happen. For us in the future, for God who's outside of time, it already exists. So we're marching towards that day. And what a great day it will be. What a glorious day it will be when we can go and join with all these tribes, all these tongues, all these people from all these nations and worshiping the Lord together. So that's the conclusion of the Bible. We're marching towards this. The Bible also has an introduction. 
It's the first, basically, 11 chapters and first couple verses of chapter 12 is the intro that sets up this story that's ultimately going to have its resolution in uh, Revelation. So let's do that. Let's go back to Genesis 1. So we started at the end. We're going back to the beginning, and then we'll zip forward. We're going to do this in a lightning round. But before we do that, let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that illuminates all of this plan that you have from the beginning of time and our part in it. I thank you that you use us to bring the message of the good news to the ends of the earth. And I pray that you'd challenge us in these verses, that you would educate us through these verses, and that ultimately we would glorify you with all that we say and do to this end, that we could see this uh, one day come true, and we'll be there for it. So we thank you for that. So thank you for your kindness and your generosity to us, the way that you bless us and the way that you use us in bringing the blessing to the nations. In Christ's name, amen. And I think I failed to mention, I'm John Downer, I'm one of the elders here, most of you know me, but in case you don't, uh, one of the elders here at the Berean Church. So Genesis chapter 1, we have to start at the beginning. If we want to understand missions, we have to start at the beginning, because the missions is about the gospel, and the gospel is about man's relationship with God. And so you have to go back to creation. So Genesis chapters 1 and 2, creation of the world, and then man is the apex of God's creation. He's He's created in God's own image and likeness, the only thing that he created that is made in his image. So we're special. Amongst all the things that God created, we're special. He has a special relationship with us that is not true of any other created thing. He provides abundantly for us. He provided the garden for us. He provided food. He provided purpose for Adam. He eventually provided Eve as this perfect uh, helpmate for him, this perfect partner. Uh, There's a love relationship between him and man, and it's a special relationship, and it's great for about 18 verses. We have this perfect relationship, and it doesn't, it doesn't even, we don't even get to the third chapter before it all goes sideways. So in chapter three, we have what I'm calling ruination, because I'm required to use words that all end in the same thing. It's like a rule. So ruination in Genesis three and verses, and then through chapter six, man openly defies God, He challenges his authority. He tries to be on the same level with him. So sin enters the picture. Man is thrown out of the garden as a result. And then it gets even worse. You know, well, it doesn't get even worse. That's pretty bad. But, you know, you get to chapter 6, and you see just how bad it's gotten. And it's gotten so bad that it is described this way in verse 5. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's bad. Not some of the thoughts. Not he was doing bad some of the time. It was all the time. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. There there's can be no uh, ambiguity about this. Total wickedness. Nevertheless, God still loves man. He still wants that broken relationship restored. But first, we come to annihilation. Chapter 7, the flood. God wipes out the wicked, except for one family. He's going to preserve his creation through one family. Serious foreshadowing happening here. Hold on to that thought. You could also put it this way. uh, Salvation for all creation comes through one man who, according to the text, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. More foreshadowing. So we have things that are being set up that are telling us a story that we're going to understand in a different way as we get further in Genesis than when we get even more so when we get to the New Testament. So then we come to, you know, the flood happens, Noah is saved and his family, they 
reproduce and they grow and there's a lot more of them, but they're not really that much better. There's all kinds of drama with Noah and his family that you can read about in the next few chapters. And then we get to chapter 11, which is the complication. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel, which you probably know. Now, what you need to know in chapter 11, verse 1, is that it says the whole earth had one language. So at this time, no different languages. Everyone could understand each other and communicate to each other. So that's important. The other thing that's important to know is they had been commanded to multiply and fill the earth, and they had not done it. They had stayed together, and then they got prideful. So in verse 4, it says, the people gathered together to build a tower, and the purpose of building the tower was to make a name for ourselves. So they're repeating the sin of Adam in the sense of they're wanting to be equal to God. In Adam's case, it was like, I want knowledge that will put me on God's level, the people in Babel were actually trying to get on God's level by building this tower which would reach the heaven, which we now know is a really absurd idea, right? There's no, you can't build something that's going to reach there. But in their pride, that's what they were trying to do, build a tower to reach to heaven. And so God is like, no, 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 this is not good. He thwarts their selfish ambition primarily through giving them different languages, right? He confuses their tongues. Now all of a sudden you have multiple languages and they're like, talking to each other, like, I don't understand a thing this guy's saying. He's like, I'm telling you to build it this way. And no, they don't understand each other because they have different languages. So they start to scatter because they realize, well, I don't know what these people are saying. I don't understand this guy. So let's scatter. So God accomplishes the scattering when they weren't willing to do it. He forced it on them. And so this is averting a, a sin situation and a pride situation, but it is massively complicated the task of global evangelism, right? Because now we start to develop different cultures. We have the people are scattered throughout the earth. They're developing unique cultures, unique customs, unique lifestyles, in addition to the unique languages, unique societies, and unique weather patterns that are going to affect other things. So this diversification starts to happen. You have all these people spread out throughout the world, and they're beginning to become radically different from one another. So even while this separation and this, uh, these differences are being introduced in chapter 11, we start to have very soon after the plan for reversing that. And so at the end of chapter 11, we have many people, still one God who loves them all and desires reconciliation for them. Another thing I want to point out is we already have talked about how in Revelation 5 and 7, we know that that's undone, that we'll all understand God. There will not be any different languages anymore. We have a brief preview of that happening in a a temporary sense at Pentecost. Do you remember that story? They're speaking, and they have translators, just like we had in Austria, and the people are like, nope, we don't need him. We understand him. And we're like, well, how? Because he's speaking a language that we knew you didn't know, but miraculously, they're all able to understand. So there's this temporary reversal of what happened at Babel there, and which will be made permanent when we get to heaven, which will be pretty cool. Because if you've ever tried to learn a second language, it's not super easy. So let's move on. Genesis chapter 12. This is the verse that's in the bulletin. It was the one I picked because it's the, the, the central verse, and it's the restoration. So Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 1, we are introduced to Abram. It becomes Abraham later. And in Genesis 2 and 3, we have what's called the Abrahamic covenant uh, And it says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and let him who dishonors you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's two verses here, verse 2, verse 3, building on, repeating the same idea and then building on it. So you see in verse 2, there's three kind of ways of, of promise that God gives, good promises that God gives. One, I will make you a great nation, which would have been weird for Abram to hear because he had no kids and he was already old at this point. So he's like, okay, I don't really know how that's going to happen. But he's like, I'm going to give you a children and children upon children upon children such that your, uh, your descendants are as numerous as the stars in the sky. And by God's grace, we're part of that constellation now. We have been adopted into Abraham's family. We are part of his children. Did you remember the song you may have sung in uh, Sunday school, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's praise the Lord. And then there was, like, legs and hands and everything going. So that's good theology. We are. We have been adopted into his family. So we are inheritors of the blessing that's given here and inheritors of the responsibility that's given here. So he's going to make him into a great nation. Important nation has come up a lot already. It came up a lot in our music, too. When we talk about nation, we're not talking about China or India or the United States or Canada or Austria. Those are political boundaries drawn by men. When we talk about nations, we're talking about a group of people with a common language or culture or, or religious identity or, you know, history, perhaps. And so, like, a country like India has lots and lots of people groups. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But know that nation doesn't mean a political country. It means a group of people. And so I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. That's not really super specific, but just general. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Note that that's exactly what the people in chapter 11 were trying to do themselves. God is like, no, I'm going to do that for you. Your job isn't to make your own name great. Your job is to let me make your name great. That's the right way to go about this. Not self-motivated, but driven by me. And then here comes the bottom line part of this. There's three blessings, and then there's the result, the, the, the outcome of that, so that you will be a blessing. The blessing is not for you alone, Abram. It is so that other people will be blessed through you. There's a blessing that's going to pass through you to all people. And this idea is repeated in verse 3. Again, I'm going to bless those who bless you. So part of that blessing that's going to come through you to other people is that I'm going to bless the people who you encounter and who are good to you and who are nice to you and who are kind to you and who don't try to destroy you. But the people who do try to destroy you, I'm going to protect you from them. So I'm going to do this through you. People are going to want to be around you because I'm going to bless them through you. But the ones that are out to get you, you don't need to worry about them. I got you. I'm going to protect you. And then here again, the bottom line part of this, in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. So I'm picking your family, but not just for your sake. I'm picking your family because ultimately all families are going to be blessed. So this is like top line versus bottom line Christianity. Top line Christianity says God blesses you, and we know that. He does. And bottom line Christianity is that blessing has a purpose, and the purpose of that blessing is so that other people will be blessed through you. So we've inherited that. We've inherited that blessing, but we've also inherited that mandate, and that's why we do missions, because it is our job, our responsibility, to make sure that we are indeed being a blessing and that we are seeing the blessing that we've received through our faith is passed on to the families throughout the earth. So, question, 
does this theme continue throughout the Bible? It does. It's all over the place. So we see the word nation show up 559 times in the Bible. We see the word peoples show up 156 times in the Bible, depending on which version you're using. I think these were NIV numbers. Ethnos, 162 times in the New Testament. That's a Greek word, ethnos, and it's where we get the word ethnic and ethnicity. So that idea of different ethnicities comes from here. So this is what, it's like a combined 900 times we're seeing this word show up in Scripture. If you open up your concordance, it's like two full pages of these things. And so go down and you'll see like almost every single book in the Bible has a reference to one of these words because it's a theme that goes throughout all of Scripture. There's a few more here at the bottom that you could look up. Uh, I don't have time to read all of those, but I would encourage you to scribble them down quickly, look them up. I do want to pause on Psalm 46.10 because Psalm 46.10 is a classic example of top-line versus bottom-line Christianity. Does anyone want to fall right into my trap by telling me what Psalm 46.10 is? Nice and loud if you do. Be still and know that I am God. Yes. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Neil. Neil got the rest of it. Most everyone memorizes the first half of Psalm 46.10, which is, be still and know that I am God. The second half of that verse is, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in all the earth. The first half is a blessing, right? You can be still, just chill and rest in the knowledge of who God is and that he is a good God who has good things in store for you. Ah, that's nice. I will be exalted in all the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. How is that going to happen? You're going to tell them. That's how that's going to happen. So yes, rejoice and rest in the fact that I am good and then go be a blessing to other people, to all nations and all the peoples of the earth. So there's top line and bottom line contained in that very verse. And again, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, you'll see that theme continue over and over again, that God's people are blessed so that they can be a blessing. However, Israel is terrible at this. They love being blessed, but they don't try very hard to be a blessing. And Old Testament is full of examples of that, of how Israel received that blessing and loved to hear that blessing, but they really didn't have much patience for the idea, like, what? You want us to be nice to other people? But they're all persecuting us. Like, they really didn't get it. And by the time we get to the Jesus part of the Bible in the New Testament, the Jesus part of the Bible, that was a terrible phrase. When we time to get to the New Testament, Israel is still completely messed up on that, right? They just can't fathom the idea that the blessing for them is meant to be shared with other people. So um, that's where we're landing when we get to the consummation. Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus is the way back, right? He's the, the consummation of this plan that's going to bring restoration between God and his people. So while in the Old Testament, the message is all about a coming Messiah, by the time we get to the New Testament, it's about the risen Redeemer, right? So the method of salvation is here. It's through Jesus. And Jesus himself starts to get this idea out here. He starts, hey, I'm going to go over to Samaria. Why do you want to do that? Because I love those people too. And I'm going to have this go to people who are not just Israel. And then the disciples are just like, what is this guy doing? Like, he's here for us. And we're like, no, I'm here for you and all of the lost sheep as well. I have other sheep too that are not of this fold. So he's getting this idea out here and they just don't know what to do with it. 
Well, he makes it abundantly clear. They eventually kind of figure it out like, oh, okay, like this isn't just for Jews. And then to make it abundantly clear, when he's at the end of his ministry, he restates basically what was told to Abraham. And so you see that Matthew 24, 14. Note that we're at the end of most of these gospels. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I very helpfully put those things in yellow so that you could see nations, people, tribe. It's all over the place. Matthew 28, you probably know this one. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what are we supposed to do? Go, make disciples, baptize, teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And who? All nations, not just Israel, not just the scattered sheep of Israel, but all nations. And then he says it also in Mark. And, you know, the gospel writers are making sure to include this in there because it was that important. Uh, He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. There's not a lot of ambiguity here, is there? And then Luke does an excellent job on this too. In chapter 24, verse 46 and 47, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then Luke, who also wrote Acts, gives us even more detail on that in the book of Acts, the first chapter. Again, these are all the things right at the end of his ministry. It's like the famous last words of Jesus. Like, you know your time is up, you're about to ascend to heaven, what's the last thing you want everybody to remember? Go to all the nations, don't keep this to yourself, send this message, tell it to your neighbors, tell it to everybody in Jerusalem, that's where you are right now, start there, preach it to everybody here, then extend that ministry to all of Judea. We've been spending a lot of time in Judea, but there's still people who don't know. You need to tell them about the resurrection. You need to tell them what this is all about. You need to tell them about the ascension. So start in Jerusalem. Make sure you cover all of Judea, and then go next door to Samaria. I know you don't really like those people, but they need to hear the message too because the message is for them. I showed you that when we went there, and I met the woman at the well. Remember that time? Yep, it's for them. So make sure you go over there. They're a little bit like you because they have some shared history with you, but we know you don't really like them because they intermarried with all of these other people that you don't really like, but rest assured, this message is for them. And then, oh, by the way, to the end of the earth. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then everywhere else, which at the time, they didn't know what everywhere else meant. They didn't know that it meant like African plains and Asian believers underground and all, you know, the lyrics from that. They didn't know there were Pacific islands. They didn't know there was an Amazon rainforest. They were just going with what the known world was. And of course, the apostles, Paul, the disciples were faithful to do it. And so we see that happen throughout the book of Acts. They obey. They do it. Much, much better than Israel did. But there is, of course, resistance to that idea. Paul has to say, look, this gospel message is for the Gentiles too, and it's controversial. They have a whole church conference about it to say, hey, what does this really mean? Is this, is this legit to the Gentiles too? And they're like, yeah, legit to the Gentiles too. So Paul is obedient. He takes the gospel to what's now Turkey, to 
Greece to Malta to Italy. He takes it to, and he wants to go to Spain. So the whole Mediterranean region, which was much of the known world at the time. And if you look at church tradition, we don't have scripture that says this, but church tradition teaches that most of the disciples, the original 12, were faithful to carry that message to the ends of the earth as well. So one of them is supposed to have gone to India and been martyred there. One of them went to North Africa and was martyred there. All of them except John paid for the gospel with their lives. And most traditions say it was while they were out, you know, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we, again, are the inheritors of that mission. It's not done. We have not reached the ends of the earth. There's still much to do. And so while the apostles, Paul and the apostles obeyed, they got the church out, we still have work to do. And so we're still in this stage of to the end of the earth. That's the stage we're in in history. We're in between the ends of the book of Acts and and Revelation and what's happening. So how are we doing? That's the part we're at now. So we've talked about this idea of unreached. Emily mentioned it. What is the unreached? So there's a couple of things you need to define here. Unreached and people group. So we talked about the people group as being different than a political nation. A people group is a group of people that has a, that's redundant, right? You know, that's obvious. A people group is a group of people that have some kind of common history, culture, language perhaps, um, some history perhaps, something that makes them identify with each other. And most countries in the world have many, many, many people groups. And unreached defines a people group that does not have a sustaining gospel presence. So there may be one believer in that area or in that people, but there's not a church that's capable of evangelizing the rest of that people. That's how we define unreached. So you may have a country like Austria, I just know these numbers because I lived there, which is 8 million people, and there's about 20,000 believers. It's like a fraction of a percent, you know. That's 20,000 people to evangelize 8 million. It's very difficult, especially when a lot of those 20,000 are in Vienna. You go outside of Vienna, you're going to see much smaller numbers. So you have a lot of unreached countries in Europe now because it's post-Christian. They have Catholic tradition, but they are not actively following the Lord. They don't know the gospel. But of course, it's other countries as well. Thailand, lots of unreached people. The Middle East, tons of them. North Africa, where our mission partners, the Shens, have their ministry, um, massive numbers of unreached. There's something called the 1040 window, which refers to parallels between 10 and 40, which is North Africa, Middle East, Central Asia through China. That's where you find the most number of unreached people groups, and that's why a lot of the people that this church supports are working in that area. Um, Austria, we have the Kassis there, Lebanon, the Caspers, India, the Anurag, Um, So we have lots of people who are working in that area because they're the most strategic places right now. So global statistics. Around the world, we have 7.9 billion people in 17,428 different major people groups. Unreached among those is 3.37 billion in 7,415 major people groups, which means that 42.5% of the population is unreached. It's a staggering number of people who live in people groups where there's not a gospel presence that's capable of reaching that entire people group. So these are people that are basically out of reach of the gospel. There's a tragedy when somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, but it's in some ways a bigger tragedy when they don't even know there's a Jesus to believe in. They have no way of knowing. And one of the things people say a lot is, what about the U.S.? We have needs here. Shouldn't we take care of our needs here first and before we go out? 
Well, we have lots of resources to meet needs here. There's no doubt there are unbelievers all around us, but there's also you. Like, we have resources here to meet those needs. If you are a non-believer in Rochester, Minnesota, you can easily get a Bible. You can go to Barnes & Noble and buy a Bible, or you can probably walk into any of the dozens of churches and say, hey, can I have a Bible? Or, or I can come out on Sunday morning and I can hear a message. So if you have the slightest inclination to know about Jesus, you have resources available to you to find out about him. That is not necessarily the case in some parts of the Middle East or Thailand or other places. They don't have the Bible, maybe. They may not have the whole scripture translated into their language. They may have only the New Testament. Some languages don't have any portion of the Bible yet. They may not have a church anywhere nearby. They may not know a single Christian. Most of the people here do. They're going to know at least one. And if they want that, if God puts that on their hearts, they have the resources. We have the resources to meet those needs here in a way that is not true overseas. You look at Justin and Jamie. Justin does a lot of stuff in this church, right? He leads the prayer team. He leads the usher team. He cleans our bathrooms. When Justin leaves, it's going to be hard for this church because he does a lot of stuff. But we believe that somebody here is going to raise up and take over those responsibilities because we have people who can do those things. But there's nobody to do what Justin and Jamie are going to do in Thailand right now. They're going and filling a massive need that the people there can't meet right now. They're relying on people like us to send some of the abundance that we have in terms of our Christian knowledge, our Bible knowledge, our ministry knowledge, bring it there to help them grow their small church. So let me put this into perspective a little bit. The next picture, this is a portion of my dad's Coke bottle collection. I asked him to pull them out and take a picture of some of the better ones. So he's got one there from Japan, one from Thailand, Iran, Korea, and the one on the far, whatever that is, the right side, I guess. Yeah, that's the, from Czech Republic. You'll like that one. I brought that one back for him in 2000 when I went there. So uh, why do I have Coke bottles in here? Because Coca-Cola was founded in 1886, and in the 90s, they had a campaign where they said they wanted to get a can of Coke in every hand by the year 2000. They didn't quite make that goal, but as of 2012, you could purchase Coke in every country except two, Cuba and North Korea, and I'll bet you can find it smuggled into both of those countries. So in just 126 years, they started here, and they had reached the entire planet with their product. Impressive. We're not doing quite as well as they are. We have not reached the entire planet. Now, mind you, it's not a fair comparison because there's a big difference between getting Coke down your gullet and getting Jesus into your heart. It's much harder to do the latter. Much harder. There's a much bigger transaction happening in there. And we are, in fact, in every single country. There's a believer in every single country. I feel pretty confident stating that. But we have not reached the unreached sufficiently when we have 42%, and we've had a 2,000-year head start on Coke. So it's a little bit of conviction that, hey, you know, do they love their Coke more than we love our Jesus? Ooh, maybe. Maybe they're really, really devoted to that in a way that we can learn from. So I say that not because, like, I want to shame anybody into that, but it's a challenge for us, right? It's a challenge for us to ask the question, you know, what are we doing with this knowledge, with this good news that we have? You know, the fact of the matter is, when we look at what this means for us, for our church, and for us as individuals, that we are indeed a blessed people whose blessing is meant to draw others to Christ. 
So the first question you have to ask yourself is, do you feel blessed? Do you feel that that blessing that is promised at the beginning of the chapters 2 and uh, verse 2 and 3 in chapter 12, does that apply to you? And I would say unequivocally, without knowing the details of your life, absolutely yes, you are. Most of us here were born in this country or in Canada, and we have certain rights and privileges that come with that, certain freedoms that we enjoy. If you're a here and you're a believer today, then that's a blessing of Christ in your life. Whether you grew up in a church, church or grew up in a family that taught you that or you came to Christ later, that's a blessing. If you look at your life compared to your neighbor, you may not feel blessed, but if you look at your life compared to what some, the rest of the world and some of the other people, then you most certainly are. So take a moment to count your blessings and acknowledge the fact that God has blessed you. God has done many great, great things in your life. And then uh, what is your response then to that? How are you being a blessing to other people? Um, if the gospel is truly good news to you, then are you compelled to share it? Um, and again, I've had seasons in my life where I did that really well, like my three years in Austria are lots of stories of God really blessing me, and I, and I see him using me to reach the nations. I've had other seasons in life when I have been focused more on being blessed than on being a blessing. And so we're all in this together in that sense. Nobody's living this out perfectly. Um, so just continue to ask that question. How are you personally going to fulfill the mandate? And I would challenge you to think of it in a couple different ways. Firstly, go. There are opportunities for you to be a blessing to the nations, to the people who are around you. Uh, locally, you don't even have to get up and move. You can do that right here in Rochester. And so that's part of what Sunday of Service was all about, right? Is getting you exposed to the needs that are right here in this community, showing you some of the ministries that are actively involved in reaching the, uh, reaching people in our, in our community and giving you an exposure to that, an experience with that, so that you can see this is really not that difficult. It's not scary to reach people and to you know, share the love of Christ with them. So I know people who have taken that experience last year and this year and have decided to do that on their own, which is wonderful. That's the whole point of it is to encourage you to do that. But you can also reach unreached people here. We have Somalis, we have Sudanese, we have Syrians, we have a ton of Afghans that arrived not too long ago. You have an opportunity to reach unreached people who are from unreached areas who have now relocated to a place that is a reached place, but we have to get into those communities. And there, some of them are really tight-knit and don't interact super well or super uh, anxious, you know, super... I lost that word. They're, they're hard to reach. They're going to be a little bit, you know, you know, insular. So it's difficult to reach them. But there are, again, are ministries like Arrive Ministries, uh, which is doing an excellent job building relationships in those, in those communities. So you can get involved in something like that and reach an unreached people group right here in Rochester. You can also do short-term trips, like Czech Republic next summer. You can do a moss trip. Well, kids, I think, do. Youth can do a moss trip, what Neil did last year with those missions on a shoestring. So there's opportunities to do stuff locally. Uh, there's opportunities, maybe one day we'll go back to Cuba, but you don't even have to do that through this church. You just go into Google and you Google short-term missions, and you'll have a gazillion different organizations that would love to send you somewhere in the world. So the mission that I was with does a short-term missions program, so you can find anything, and they'll be happy to send you somewhere for six weeks, two weeks, six months, however. There's all kinds of opportunities out there. 
Or maybe God is calling some of you to consider long-term missions, as he did with Emily, um, and he's done with Justin and Jamie, too, uh, to follow in their footsteps. And others from this church, there are others from this church who were members here that went and served. Um, right now, they're the two that have the closest connection to us that we're still actively supporting. And I would say all of these things are things we do as a church. So you're part of that as just being a person who regularly attends here or is a member here. Things like Sunday of service, things like the short-term trips we've offered, and then that board right out there that shows all of the people that we are supporting. This church gives money to help support those people. And so that's the go part. The send part, we can be part of sending others, such as those people that are out on that board. And again, we do that as a church. We set aside a portion of our budget every year to support missionaries who are serving overseas because it's an absolutely vital part of our ministry. We are a blessed church that wants to be a blessing to the nations. And so part of that is simply supporting and encouraging and lifting up those people. William Carey was one of the first modern missionaries in the late 18th century. He had a desire to go from his home country in England to go to India, and he really changed radically that entire country. Um, and he, he had a hard time getting into missions because his church at first was said, well, you don't need to go to missions. God will save people without you or me. Like, well, that's not usually how he does it. Yes, he can do it that way, but he wants to use us as part of that. And so he had to kind of fight against that mentality in his church. But once he did get the approval to go and he was planning to go, he said to the church, I need people. I am willing to go down into the depths to the darkest places in the world if you will but hold the rope for me. And I love that analogy because that's what we who support missionaries do. We hold the rope for people like Emily and for Justin and Jamie so that they can go into hard places. And we keep supporting them and we keep on the other end of that rope making sure that they're secure. Some of the ways we do that. Finance is obviously one of them. So you need to understand when it comes to the financial side of things that like Nathan and Neil are full-time pastors. We pay them to minister to us and for us and provide opportunities. They don't have to have other jobs in order to pay for their bills, to pay for their expenses. Many churches don't have that luxury. They have smaller churches are going to have a pastor who has a full-time job and tries to do the ministry on top of that in their free time. It is very difficult because there's a lot of needs, and you need full-time people in larger churches like this one to be able to do that. Missionaries are the same way in many senses. We are sending them over to there to be full-time in ministry. But there is no church that they're going to be getting money from. Like the church that Emily was describing, eight people, they're not paying her. We're paying her to be there to do that. That she is an extension of this church's ministry, and Justin and Jamie will be too. There are, there are missionaries that have jobs that make money and are able to sustain themselves, but that's exceptionally rare. Most of them are full-time in ministry and are relying on churches and people to give them the money so that they can afford to do that, to meet all of their needs. So what do those needs look like? Cost of living, health insurance, ministry expenses. Missionaries, unlike pastors, have to raise all of the money to cover all of those things that an employer might otherwise cover. And like for Mayo, I get my health insurance heavily subsidized. Missionaries have to pay all of it. They have to pay their payroll taxes themselves. They have to raise all of their ministry expenses themselves. And there's no cost of living raises unless their, their supporters give them to them. There are no bonuses and there are no promotions. 
You can't work really well as a missionary and be like, boom, you got promoted to the next level and it brings a 10% pay increase. Yes, it doesn't happen. You know, you have to raise the support. So it's difficult because you also have to raise all this money up front. There is no pass the, 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 the thing around once a week and get it that way. It has to be committed up front. And typically what happens is when you go to the field, it goes down because life happens and some of your supporters may drop off. Some of them may have financial difficulties. So there's typically attrition in their support too. So it's difficult. And we are asking our missionaries, hey, we want you to be linguists, teachers, preachers, evangelists, and also fundraisers. Good luck. Do all of those things. It's challenging. So I have the utmost. I did it for three years. Well, no, I did it for eight years because my next sport. So I did that for eight years. I raised like $25,000 a year because I was single for most of that time, and I didn't have kids for any of that time. When you have to raise money for a whole family, it's even more difficult. So that's what we ask them to do. This church supports Justin and Jamie and supports Emily at a higher level than any of the other missions partners because they're us, because they're from us. But even with that generosity, we can't possibly support all of their needs. They have to go to other people. So that's why they've been reaching out to you and asking you and reaching out to people in their families and other churches in this area because you have to ask a lot of people to raise the amount of money that's necessary to support someone in a full-time way. So that's the reality of what they're dealing with, and I want you to know that so that when they come and ask you, if they haven't already, that you know that's the background for it and why we do that. And then, of course, the other places, and, and Emily went over this list already, so thank you for that. You, you helped set this up for me. So there's the financial side. There's the prayer side. They absolutely need prayer. Consistent prayer for their protection, for their health, for their effectiveness in ministry, for joy to be the, what's filling their, fueling their ministry. Um, read their updates, please, and see what they're asking for, and please pray for them. We pray for them on Sunday mornings in there. We have lists. We compile all the lists of prayer requests that they send us, and we pray through those things on a regular basis, and I would encourage you to do that. And Emily also mentioned other types of support. So write to them. Call them. WhatsApp. WhatsApp is a great way that you can actually call and talk to people overseas. It's very inexpensive or free, I think. You might be able to send them stuff, but I would definitely encourage you to ask them about that before you do it, because some countries it's like, yes, you can send a lovely care package, and I'll be charged $150 for the privilege of taking it and receiving it, or I will get half of it because they will have opened it and taken a bunch of stuff out of it. So definitely ask first, but you may have an opportunity to bless them by sending them something, some kind of food from back home, maybe some books or CDs or something like that. Anyone listen to CDs anymore? I got CDs, but that was 20 years ago. So ask them, like, what are some practical needs that we can uh, fill for you? So those are all ways that you can send. And I just want to just finish up here by just reminding you, we are a blessed people. We see that in our lives, and we see it in Scripture, that we are blessed not for our own sake, though we do receive a blessing to our, just of ourselves, but that blessing has a purpose to it beyond just what we derive from it. The purpose of it is to bring the gospel to the nation so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through us. We have been given the gift of faith and the gift of this message, and he, we are the people that God is using to bring the message to the ends of the earth. And I'm so thankful for Justin and Jamie for will, being willing to do that and for Emily and her five years of service now to do that. We are blessed to be reaching the nations through them, and we will be blessed if each one of us takes an active role in that, whether that's going ourselves locally or 
overseas and, and or supporting those who do. So lastly, you can do both. You, you can be part of going, you can be part of sending. This church is doing both of those things, and I would encourage you as well to do that and to see how God will bless you even more as you take steps in obedience to that. So with that, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for um, your blessing us and your using us to bless other people. That's much more than just a responsibility or an obligation. It's a joy and a privilege to be used to reach the nations, uh, used by you to reach the nations. And so I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your word that has this message so clear for us. Uh, It's impossible to miss it as we read your word and see that you indeed will fulfill what is uh, promised in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be present in heaven. I long for that day when we can worship you all of us together. In the meantime, Lord, let us worship you now in English, in our language, uh, looking ahead to the day when all nations will be gathered together. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.